Hi, you're listening to Hacker Public Radio. I'm 330, and this is Copy Fight. Hi, everybody. I'm going to take this episode of Copy Fight to let you guys know about a new podcast called the Software Freedom Law Center Podcast. It's from the Software Freedom Law Center. And um, I'm going to play it at the end of this uh, little intro here. Um, In this episode, they go through how they began at the Software Freedom Law Center and a little bit of their background of just, you know, personal stuff. Um, It's really just a kind of let you know about the hosts kind of thing. Um, if you guys really dig this, uh, I'll be I can put more of them in the into HPR's feed. Um, if you don't like them, let me know and I won't do it. Uh, it is licensed under Creative Commons Attribution No Derivatives, so I will be playing it in its full length. I'll just add the file right on to the end of what I'm saying. So here is episode zero of the. Software Freedom Law Center podcast. Hello, I'm Bradley Kuhn. And welcome to the zeroth episode of the Software Freedom Law Show. Zeroth episode. Yeah, that's my fault, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> it is. Bradley, why don't you tell us about well, it? Well, you should start everything numbering at zero. That's just standard, right? I mean, that's what things start at. Bradley numbers all of his uh, numbered lists and emails starting with zero rather than one. Well, it's the whole number. It's the first whole number. That's true. <laughs> it's, like the, it's like the zeroth law. I don't even... Oh, you're talking about Asimov? dynamics. Uh, oh. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, why don't we kick off by you explaining why this is the zeroth episode? Well, it's not just because I like starting numbering at zero, although that's the primary reason, I suppose. The other reason is that this uh, episode will probably be somewhat boring. Well, first of all, everybody's first episode of a podcast is horrible. <laughs> I've listened to every Linux and free software and open source podcast out there, and all the first episodes are not very good. Bradley is our uh, podcast monitor at SFLC. Uh, not a monitor, because <laughs> there's only my hall monitor or something. <laughs> Bradley has the past to listen to. <laughs> you know, um, Bradley does the favor of reporting back to us of all the important information included on podcasts, to the extent that we don't also listen to them. And their first and or zero with episode is always the worst episode. Right. So for our zero with episode, what we thought we'd do is just explain what the Software Freedom Law Center is, what the Software Freedom Conservancy is, and introduce you to uh, your hosts, me and Karen, and then we'll move on to a much more interesting thing for the first episode. So if you already know all about us and our organizations that we're involved with, you could probably just skip this whole podcast. Or if you just don't like listening to the first episode of any podcast. But yeah, I always listen to it's, it's fun to see, you know, you can even give most improved awards, you know, if you listen to vodka because they improve so much by the second episode or first episode, depending on how you started numbering. Well, uh, well actually, the zeroth is the first, technically speaking. That's that's true, but I, I like When you use ordinal numbers. <laughs> there is no zeroth ordinal number. Well, okay. So why don't, why don't we start out, Bradley, by talking about um, how the SFLC was founded? 
So uh, it was uh, formed in March 2005, and where it came from was uh, a lot of work that I had been doing while I was executive director of the Free Software Foundation, along with Evan Moglin and Dan Ravisher, who were legal counsel to the FSF at the time. We were doing all sorts of interesting legal work for the FSF and for its GNU project. And we felt that it would be really good if that work could be expanded beyond just the GNU project, because there's so much legal work that a free software or open source project needs help with. You know, there's copyrights, trademarks, governance issues that we'll talk about in a minute, those sorts of things that Evan and Dan really helped the FSF do, and we thought it would be good for everybody to get access to that, instead of just projects that had affiliated themselves with the GNU project and therefore the FSF. So what Edmund did is went out and formed an organization, and Dan and I came on as the part of the founding team to give those kinds of legal services to all sorts of open source and free software projects. No matter what license they have? That's correct, yeah. <laughs> we, didn't, we didn't want to uh, against any particular license. Obviously, I'm a big fan of the GPL, and I've been associated with the Afero GPL in particular, uh, but uh, there's lots of great open source and free software under every license, from Afero GPL to GPL to LGPL to Apache license to regular ISC and BSD licenses. So we wanted to make available these legal services to any project of any kind under any license, as long as they were two things, under an open source and free software license, and were operating in a not-for-profit way of some sort. And that was the founding of SVLC. That was in what month of 2005? March of 2005. Okay, because I joined in October. Correct. So that was, I guess, six months later. Yep. Um, and now we are, I guess, we are six lawyers mm-hmm. um, and uh, two admin staff. Two admin staff with a total of nine yeah, employees. Yeah. I'm or? somewhere halfway in between of a policy person and a lawyer. I'm not a lawyer myself, but uh, I'm involved in lots of the legal work that we do uh, in, in a policy sort of role. That's right. And you're surrounded by lawyers constantly. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's, it's, that's not a bad thing. I mean, I think that, that the type of issues that come up that, that we're trying to solve are sometimes things that, that hackers need to be educated about. And we're here for them to help them learn about issues of you know, copyright and what license they should put their project under. And once they've decided on a license, how do they build their copyright structure? Do they take assignments? Do they each person hold their own copyright? How does that interact with employment agreements? those sorts of things. Uh, Then there's patent issues, of course, which uh, uh, occasionally a project will run into someone with an unfriendly patent to free software, and we help out, and we've done that a number of times. And uh, there's trademark issues, which I know you've dealt with Mm -hmm. quite a bit for some of the clients. Uh, And then just anything else that comes up in the course of doing a free software project uh, with legal issues we help with. And I'm always really impressed, actually, with our clients um, because they are – I think that the free software community in particular is so tuned into the legal issues that that affect them, and it's it's fascinating to me to see just how much they know already, and then it's great to be there to help them the rest of the way as legal experts. Yeah, of course, there, there's a lot of misinformation uh, and confused well, information too. out there as well. <laughs> um, you know, it's, it's unfortunate that we have so many people in the community that opine on legal issues who don't really understand. And one of the things we hope to do with this podcast is to make uh, the level of 
legal knowledge in the open source and free software community at a higher level by giving more education and more information. That's one of our goals as an organization is to help people understand the legal issues that surround open source and free software and make sure that they know what they need to know. Because there's only a subset that they actually need to be aware of on a day-to-day basis to be able to operate. Uh, And then when they need more detailed stuff, they can, of course, come to us and get advice. And we're always in a situation where we're somewhat limited about what we can talk about. Um, Because most of the work that we do is client-specific work. It's it's all governed by attorney-client privilege, and therefore we can't really talk to the public about it too much. So we thought of this would be a good forum to talk about some of the issues that affect um, free and open source software where we won't have to talk about what our clients in particular are doing, but we can still talk about the issues and provide public education. Yeah, it's, it's a really tough challenge for us. You know, we, we like to talk about as much as we can the work that we do. And most 501c3 charities uh, like ourselves want to get information out there about what they're doing. But you know, our first goal and first uh, duty is to the clients who, ha- who have taken our advice and need our confidential advice. Uh, so we'll, we'll do our best to distill some knowledge that we have into general ways as we also have on our resource page. If you want to read more about uh, things that we've done, you can do that. Uh, and we'll try to distill some of that knowledge into a nice 30-minute uh, podcast each week. Um, and to keep our podcast on track in our zeroth episode, um, we should now, I guess we should segue and talk about the Software Freedom Conservancy and what it does. Yeah, in fact, I mentioned during the uh, during my list of things we help with uh, as governance issues. And it's kind of interesting what happened uh, uh, when we first started getting our uh, you know, first five or six clients, you know, mostly you were doing a lot of work uh, to help them do a nonprofit to get incorporated and started. That's right. Over and over again, I was dealing with free software projects that needed to incorporate, and that was for a number of reasons. The um, my favorite reason is actually um, projects that received Google Summer of Code checks, mm-hmm. and um, the developers that received them didn't want to take them personally mostly because the money that they received for Summer of Code, they wanted to devote to the project, but also because if they cashed it, it would be personal income. Yeah, that's a really tough problem. You know, when you're when you're a group of developers, you know, most free software developers, they have uh, it's sort of the canonical free software developer, lowercase c, uh, is <laughs> an independent contractor, does lots of different work for different clients. Uh, as part of their ability to serve those clients, they're developing this open source and free software around what they do. So their work on the open source and free software is actually separate from that consulting work. It's just sort of feeding that abil- their ability to do that. So when they were working on the project, they want it to be available in sort of a not-for-profit way. Mm-hmm. But most of them don't have an official organization. There's just sort of a loosely organized band. Right, usually... it, it, sometimes it's an unincorporated association. Yeah, what, <laughs> unincorporated association. What does that mean? <laughs> uh, I, I, you say that all the time, I and know, I always wonder. Well, it's different state by state, so yeah. I'll, I, won't, I won't bore our listeners with okay. yeah. <laughs> too much detail. But suffice it to say that we were incorporating project after project in the same way. So we were filing the articles of incorporation. We were helping them find the right board of directors. Right. So, so each organization needs a whole whole bunch of people to right. make it happen. Right. No matter how it was structured originally, no matter how it naturally developed, mm-hmm. whether there was a you know a, a lead maintainer or a committee or 
um, just a couple of people, no matter how it had naturally organized, it would need a board of directors just like any other organization because it was governed by state and federal laws. Right, and there's various state-by-state minimums of how many board of directors you need, or how many directors you need on the board, right? Exactly. And usually you need, uh, although it's not always required, right, you, you usually need some sort of president who's going right. to follow you, the day-to-day Most states operation. require certain oh, officers. They, right. Um, but there are, it, it varies, so they're all pretty different, right, but, and they require meetings. Right, and, and, the, and a lot of people, even some states require and some states don't, as I understand it, but a lot of people need a treasurer or somebody to keep mm-hmm. track of the funds coming in. That's even right. if it's not required by the state, they need that uh, kind of staffing. Right, and that's actually what we've seen many times is where the, the officer situation breaks down, because especially a volunteer treasurer, that is a lot of work, um, you know, looking after the finances of an organization and, you know, uh, keeping all the receipts mm-hmm. and maintaining all the books and making all the annual filings. It's just, it's a lot of work. And, and usually the people who are involved in a free software project are there because they love to code. They, they want to write the software, um, not worry about the organization. Or, or write documentation. Or write documentation. <laughs> no, absolutely. But, but, but they're, they're not, people don't they're, become they're involved not there, in free yeah. software projects because they're, they're really excited to collect receipts. Right, and do administrative <laughs> work. So, so what, I mean, what we basically discovered you know, when we incorporate each of these nonprofits, finding the people to do all those jobs uh, made a real challenge for the projects because they had to devote uh, resources, uh, basically individuals' time, that would normally go into coding and documentation into this administrative work. Uh, so what we did was form a separate organization, which is designed just to be that infrastructure for any free software project that needs it and applies to join. So it's basically an umbrella organization. Exactly. It's called an umbrella organization, and it, it means that projects can join the umbrella without having to change the way that they're set up. So instead of having to take the project and find people who want to be directors for that project, instead that project can keep whatever um, you know, whatever management structure that already had, whether it was consensus or some other organization, and just join the conservancy. Mm-hmm. And so you, you often analogize it to they become a, almost like a division of a company. Yeah, sort of legally, sort of you can analogize it from like a, 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 a corporate entity standpoint. Yeah, you can t- say that they're, um, they're divisions of a company. They've, there's only one board, and mm-hmm. that's at the, the very top. And we only have to file one tax return mm-hmm. and only one annual report, mm-hmm. and, and that takes care of all the New York filings. It takes care of all of the, the other stuff. And it, it also has one infrastructure for admin activities, like reimbursing expenses. Of course, that's mostly you, Bradley. Yeah, I, mean, I, I, actually, <laughs> yeah, I actually serve as the president of this organization, and, and what we do is we handle the administrative work of the financial aspects and, and other types of administrative tasks for the projects. They join and sign up, and they continue on coding. They then have uh, the ability to keep restricted donations that come into the Software Freedom Conservancy, and they're earmarked as directed for a given project. And each project then has a balance within the conservancy of funds that they can spend on any activity that's forwarding the 501c3 mission of conservancy, which is a very general mission of advancing open source and Mm -hmm. free software development. So things like sending developers to conferences and getting reimbursements for their expenses while they're at those conferences. And also helping projects. Yeah, even funding and setting up conferences. We've done a little bit of that and even funding active development work. In a couple of cases, Mm -hmm. developers are getting funds uh, from the conservancy. So these companies that benefit from the open source and free software that has 
has been developed, donate back to the Conservancy, and then the Conservancy can pay as a contractor, a developer, to continue doing some of the work. Uh, so that works out, I think, really well uh, for projects that need the infrastructure of a nonprofit organization but don't have all this extra administrative staff to do. Uh, and, and it was a really, uh, it was a really innovative idea. It, it, rather than incorporating a nonprofit for each project that came along to us for help, who needed help with these kinds of governance issues, we now can say, well, you, of course, we've helped a few that have a different sort of desire to have their own nonprofit, or they simply have enough people that they can incorporate themselves, or they can join the conservancy. Right. So it saves our time, but yeah. mostly, most importantly, it saves the time of, of the projects that join. Yeah, on an ongoing mm-hmm. basis too, because they don't have to keep up that board of directors and a president and so forth. They don't want to. And, of course, they can always spin off out of the conservancy as well. Absolutely. And just to, um, to be a geeky lawyer here, uh, Bradley and I are both officers of the conservancy, but we're also staff members of the SFLC. Yeah, it's a common confusion that people have. You know, we formed the conservancy basically within a year of forming SFLC. Uh, and so a lot of people don't understand that they are separate organizations. With separate boards that, that don't they, – there is some overlapping, but they're, the majority is they're controlled um, by completely different people. Than- yeah, the way I think of it is we have, we have two organizations so that we can serve the broad spectrum of needs that these projects have. So through the SFLC side, which is, which is where the actual employees are, we can service the needs of legal issues and questions and being lawyers for open source and free software projects. And then through the conservancy side, we can handle the more administrative burden and organizational and governance burden. Uh, and by having the staffs uh, coordinated so well together, we're able to uh, provide a large spectrum of services that open source and free software projects need. And we'll talk a little bit more about all of that in the next segment. Yep. So, hey, Karen, did you notice how noisy that, uh, I guess, siren was during the last segment? Uh, it's New York. <laughs> yeah, so uh, people should probably be told that we're recording uh, here from our offices, the Software Freedom Law Center's offices in New York City. In Manhattan. In, yeah, in the Upper West <laughs> Side of Manhattan. So there's this constant, you know, it's, it's, like, uh, it's like that joke in... Uh, in the uh, the Spaceballs movie about the, the the sirens in Paris, how they always sound. It's like that in New York City, too, although they sound different. Just constant noise of sirens going off all the time. And, and you moved here from Boston? It's not as loud in Boston? Well, it's not really. I, I When I worked at the Free Software Foundation for about uh, six years, I was actually an employee in Boston of the Free Software Foundation. It's it's not as loud there. there there's a, there's an area there where it's not as Is close to Cambridge the... Cambridge? Yeah. I've been there. Oh, well, I lived in Cambridge. Offices, yeah. I'm so yeah. done with... It, it's it's <laughs> funny. The, the, you know, people geography. think of... Uh, in fact, there's a reporter named Hiawatha Brown who in, who insists on when he writes articles about the FSF, uh, he always has the sort of uh, you know, local org makes good kind of way of writing about. It. He writes for the tech page in, in Boston, and he always says Cambridge-based Free Software Foundation. Uh, I guess because that's where uh, Stallman, the founder of FSF's office, is, and their offices actually were in Cambridge in the late '80s and early '90s, but they're in Boston now. But I think the right. the feel of Cambridge, you know, where you know Richard Stallman and Noam Chomsky and MIT and all that stuff <laughs> is, it makes it more fitting with the FSF and the way people think of it. So, so when you became an employee of the FSF, you were volunteering at the FSF first. Yeah. Well, yeah, I started volunteering uh, very early on, right after college in 1995. I, I, my, my story, actually, of how I got into free software uh, was 
I was working on an AT&T 3B2 uh, Unix system, and I didn't like VI, primarily because there were no uh, no streams and sockets on the system, and there was no job control, so you couldn't hit Control-Z right. and get back to a shell. So you would have to shell out a VI. So I would... All... As an aside to our readers, we occasionally have this VI Emacs debate. Yeah, you're a VI user. <laughs> but anyway, I was a VI user at first, right? And so... Although we called it Vi, which was the thing. I, I don't. People think I'm crazy. I, yeah, I've never heard it called Vi until I came to SFLC. Well, my first job, we all called it Vi. I, I mean, that was what we called it. I, I, I don't. I, I was surprised when I heard people say Vi. Anyway, so I was using Vi and would have to shell out to get a shell. So I would spend the whole day like working on a file and then shelling out to compile, and then I'd open another file, and then I'd have these stacked shell Vi, shell Vi, shell Vi all the way up because I couldn't suspend anything, and so I'd have to push on my way all, back, all the way back out. So what I really wanted was an editor that could edit two files at once. And this is 1991, so Vim didn't exist. There was no way to edit two files in Vi at once in those days. Um, so I got Emacs. And the weird thing, as some old-school Emacs users will know, uh, is that there was this big argument about what Control-H should do. And Stallman believed very strongly Control H should Not always help? be help. Yes, it uh-huh. should always be help, right? But on a lot of terminals, Control H is backspace. Right. And Stallman thought there should be a delete key, not a backspace key. I, I don't, I don't really know the deep, full details of the, <laughs> the backspace versus delete argument. Although I know it was related to the XEMX fork uh, in some ways. And uh, I, of course, had a terminal with Control H being backspace. So every time I hit backspace, I would get help. Uh, until I finally figure out how to change it all. But if you got help and then you hit certain characters, you get things like a copy of the GNU Manifesto displayed or a copy of the GPL. Mm-hmm. So in 1991, I first read the GNU Manifesto because I got it by accident because mm-hmm. okay, and I read the GPL and I was Which I was very clever in a way. Yeah, I, I've always <laughs> people accidentally read that important document. In fact, document. I've always wondered if the whole thing was about. Um, this issue of, <laughs> of forcing people to read the documents. Uh, if Stallman intended that with the Control H thing. Anyway, it worked on me because I read those things and I was sure that free software was the only way to do software from then on, basically. Uh, so I was a big fan of free software and open source and I installed uh, Linux at uh, 0.9, patch level 12 was my first kernel. Um, Zero point ninety nine, rather. It was in ninety, beginning, very end, very beginning of ninety two. Zero point ninety nine, patch level twelve. That was my first kernel <laughs> version, uh, and I installed it using SLS, which was the one, basically the first distribution, which eventually became Slackware when the SLS guys uh, stopped maintaining it. So uh, I've been a fr- fan and user of free software uh, since around nineteen ninety two. And I got involved as a volunteer for the FSF in 1996, uh, first doing various website things, and I helped to do the licensing page where it has the list of licenses and so forth. I, I wrote to Stallman and said, why, don't, why isn't there a list of page? <laughs> yeah, this is a very common thing with the FSF. You, I wrote to Stallman and said, you really should have a list of licenses that explain all the licenses and what they mean and, and whether or not they're GPL compatible and all this thing. And he said, would you like to do that? And so I ended up doing it. So that was uh, d- the late 90s as I volunteered for the FSF. And I, I ended up going to graduate school in uh, Cincinnati at the University of Cincinnati. So that was like 97 uh, to 2000. 
And Cincinnati must be quieter than New York. Cincinnati is definitely quieter <laughs> than New York. It's especially the area that I was in. Although there's a lot more cars in Cincinnati than there is in New York in a way because everybody has a car. I wonder. I, I would like to know that actually whether there are more cars. It feels like there's more cars because you can't go to the grocery store without a car. It's just hard. Right. Right. So so yeah. So I spent uh, I spent a number of years there, sort of hiding out. I mean, basically, I went to grad school because I didn't want to do proprietary software development anymore. I hated it, mm-hmm. or or system administration work as I was doing. I just decided I was never going to do it again, so I figured I'd go hide in academia and uh, and hope that I would never have to do proprietary software again. Uh, and uh, it ended up working out because and I, you haven't. Yeah, I have not. In fact, I, in fact, I I, uh, I removed Windows from my computer in 1999. Mm-hmm. Um, as I had a dual boot system only to run Quicken, uh, and then GNU Cache got stable enough uh, that I could use that. Quicken was the last proprietary program I used on a regular basis. And uh, I was uh, able to get rid of that and switch to GNU Cache. And so since 2000, I've been a fully free software uh, u- uh, user only. So that's been good. Uh, and so, so I got hired by the FSF when I finished my master's degree uh, for, as a after full-time. After volunteering. Yeah, after volunteering yeah. for a number of years. Actually, I was hired part-time, and I worked for a year part-time while I was in Cincinnati, and then was hired full-time in 2001. And uh, uh, I... I Somehow got pro- promoted from assistant to vice president to executive director, which was really weird. <laughs> well, what happened was I, I went to Stallman in the beginning of 2001 and said, you know, people aren't taking me seriously when I email them because my title is assistant to Richard Stallman, so they don't take me seriously. He goes, okay, so we'll call you the vice president then. <laughs> so then I was the vice president, and then, you know, within six months I was the executive director. So mm-hmm. uh, so it's when you're at a small organization, these things happen. Actually, I don't know the answer to this. What? How many years were you the executive director of the FSF? Um Five years, basically. Oh, okay. Uh, five That's years. Um, so I was employed for about uh, about seven, total of six and a half, mm-hmm. um, maybe seven, somewhere in there. Um, depending on you know wh- where you where you put my employment starting at uh, and versus volunteer time because I started getting paid very uh, you know for a couple of hours here and there right. and eventually became part time then full time. Sort of so. mapping my own timeline against that. I guess I was in law school. No, I was I was in engineering school when you were volunteering. Right, because your undergraduate degree is in it's is, in engineering. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So. Yeah, that's uh, I I forget that sometimes because I think of you as a as lawyer, a but lawyer, you're, right? you're, you're yeah. part, using VI, you know? Yeah, well, maybe you could do C programming <laughs> on Fortran, right? For, Fortran was really Fortran and C. That was uh, you know most relevant for engineers, so that's what we learned. Well, I mean, it depends yeah. on whether. Well, in in 1995, I guess that's you true. know that that was the case. Yeah, it's sadly still the case in some segments. Well, I don't know if it's sadly. I mean, there's so much <laughs> useful. There's so much. There's so many useful programs out there in Fortran that it's you true. know it's it's going to stay relevant for some time. I wrote a Fortran good work is done. Ones. Oh, that was horrible. Didn't know that. <laughs> <laughs> I think it was in Pascal. <laughs> well, it didn't. It didn't do all of it, but it did some of it. But then I went to law school. Yeah. yeah. So, so what, what, what inspires an engineer to go to law school? I mean, what, what was the? Um, you know, it's interesting. I think. I think I just wanted to sort of go to the problem solving for people mm-hmm. because before I was in this sort of problem solving from first scientific principles mm-hmm. and I was very, very interested in people. I ran the, you know, the student council mm-hmm. in, um, in college and I, I was just really curious. Mm-hmm. So, um, so I, I went to law school from, from that regard. And, and when I was in law school, as you know, uh, Evan Moglin was my professor. So that's sort of was my first, my first taste of, of, of all this. Yeah, back when he was, well, he still is obsessed with Pearl, but he was really obsessed with Pearl. Oh, yeah. Time. One of the first things that he said to me was, learn Pearl. <laughs> <laughs> I actually submitted a, as one of my essays to him, a choose-your-own-essay essay, 
um, where um, because we were we had a, a, a really strict word limit, mm-hmm. so you could only give him a thousand words. So mm-hmm. I just you know gave him a, a little thing where he would answer questions saying about what what his view was on the issue and he would get the the essay that was tailored to him that was exactly a thousand words which was really geeky but it was written in c and he was like why are you writing in c writing in pearl well i mean you know evans you don't expect from a law professor well evans issue is he did apl programming for for too long as a as a young man and now and now, you know, it's uh, the parts of Pearl that are like APL are the only ones he likes. It's it's often too bad. It, well, Larry has this problem as well uh, to some extent. Um, <laughs> there, there is there there are things about Pearl that are very APL focused. Uh, so yeah, Larry Wall was on my thesis committee as a grad student. So oh, okay. I, I, my thesis was related to Pearl uh, and trying to port it to the Java virtual machine, mm-hmm. which was a, a crazy thing to do. But there are reasons, and, and in some <laughs> other technical podcast, I'll explain what I was doing and why Parrot is the future and, and such things, but, but that's probably off topic uh, for, for our um, legal so podcast. To get on topic, <laughs> what should we do? Where, where are we now? I guess... Um... We're talking about our histories. Yeah, so. and so and so you're you know you, you you have this connection between engineering and law that we're going to talk uh, actually our, our next uh, as a preview to our next podcast we're going to talk in detail about that but but it sort of brings you back to that community of, of scientists and, and and engineers coming back to to we're coming to work for the SFLC. Yeah, well. absolutely. Because after law school, I went and became a finance lawyer. Um, where I did a lot of securities law, which which was really interesting, and in fact did did use a lot of my technical skills because I was working mostly on um, financing of technical companies, mm-hmm. but um, but it, it was much less directly involved. So I was really happy to get back to this. Um, basically, I I I guess I just had enough mm-hmm. with being a finance lawyer, and I'd worked in London and um, New York and a little bit in Hong Kong, and um, a lot of my clients were in Brazil, and that was pretty fun. Mm-hmm. But I, at one point, I just realized that you know I was spending a lot of time working on things I didn't really care very much about. You see, this is why I never ended up being a lawyer because because all of you have that what, what, what I think of it as a dark period where where you, <laughs> I mean it's the whole structure of the system is very strange because you, you go well, into this so tremendous amount of debt right <laughs> you have all this debt uh, that you have to pay off so you end up having to work uh, basically for you know you know people who. I would never want to work for. Um. Yeah, it, it, was, it was rough at times, but yeah. um, but it was overall it was it was pretty fun, especially at the beginning. We said one of the one of the things you told me before about the interesting aspect of, of what you did in securities law is is making sure that people met the the regulations of doing IPOs and other types of. Yeah, I like to say thing. that securities law is the sort of the the best place for an idealist to be in a law firm mm-hmm. because. Securities lawyers are, are gatekeeper attorneys. They're regulatory lawyers. And you have to make your clients disclose to the public whatever is material that you discover. And you have to look at all their documents and you have to ask mm-hmm. tough questions of the CEOs of the company mm-hmm. and, and, and really get that information across. And if they won't publish it, then you can't give an opinion and the deal can't get, get done. And I've never been in a situation where they wouldn't want the deal done, so they mm-hmm. disclosed the information and then the, the public was much better off. So it was in that instance, I, I really liked it a lot, but um, but it, it, it certainly wasn't um, something I could focus, you know, much of my life on. So. Yeah, I mean, I, but it's impressive that you know you and the other attorneys that we've uh, been able to hire here. You know, you've you've stepped out of that law firm world and come to do nonprofit work. I think you you actually wanted. To, you actually made this decision to leave the law firm and come try to do something nonprofit. Yeah, that, that was exactly my stated reason for leaving. And the partner that I worked with at the law firm looked at me quite skeptically when, <laughs> when I told him that's what I was doing. And he said, well, I hope it works out for you. But um, but then shortly after I quit, actually, I heard that Evan had started SFLC. I mean, I think he had also heard that I had quit. 
And, um, and so we got together and realized that there was a, a good place for me here. And it's, it was sort of the, the dream job I probably could never have dreamt up. Mm-hmm. Had yeah. I tried. So. Well, I mean, I think that's that's part of what our organization is trying to do is is make is make legal talent like yours available to uh, free software developers. Be able to get those kinds. Of, uh, I mean, basically, le- you know, going through the law firm structure, you learn so much about how the law works and how to apply it to new situations, and, and to be able to bring you guys in and 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 be able to take that talent and apply it to the free software world. I mean, that was sort of the dream that Evan had for the organization was to be able to do that. And in, in my case, I had a lot of, you know, corporate finance experience, and that translates really, really well to nonprofit corporate and tax. Right. So when I first came to SLC, that was most of what I was doing was, um, and I and you still, still do tons still of that. a big portion of what I do is, is advising our, our nonprofit clients about how to either how to organize or how to, how to maintain their operations, how to set up scholarship programs and uh, enter the contracts they need to. And mm-hmm. so that's translated really well. And then I've been able to do the copyright and trademark, um, you know, and, and, and other related areas of law, which are so important to what we do. Yep. 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 So, so it's really, it's really excellent that we've been able to do this. And I, I hope that over the next, uh, as long as we keep this podcast going, that we're able to help the community understand what we're doing. I mean, I've gotten this basic introduction to who we are, who the organizations are, and we're going to hopefully cover a topic uh, every week that is of interest, and we're going to have a guest every week in this segment where we've been talking uh, to each other, sort of interviewing each other. That will be an uh, uh, interview every two weeks uh, with somebody involved in open source and free software uh, law. We have an excellent guest whom I won't uh, spoil by telling you. You're going to find out next next episode uh, for our first, uh, first guest, and uh, we're really looking forward to helping the community learn more about the legal issues of open source and free software on our Software Freedom Law Show. And we look forward to seeing you next time. That's it for Episode Zero of the Software Freedom Law Show. The Software Freedom Law Show was produced by Dan Lynch of halfbakedmedia.com. is sponsored by caro.net, so head on over to caro.net for all your hosting needs.